Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I'll do a really quick intro here since we have a bit of a long main part of the show. Once again, we're going to do something from uh, my road trip. This is the last leg of it, and it was at Stanford University. Uh, I debated debated Bruce Nillis of the Sierra Club. He was one of the leaders of the infamous, to us anyway, Beyond Coal campaign. And I felt like I was able to make a lot of points that I wanted to in the debate. So listen to it and let me know what you think. Uh, Thank you all for coming out. I'm Kevin Douglas. I'm the outgoing executive vice president of Stanford's Federalist Society, and I'm the current president of the Objectivists of Stanford. Um, Both student groups have come together to bring you this debate, which happens to be on a topic that's extremely uh, important for us right now in terms of uh, political and moral issues. Uh, Should the government restrict the use of fossil fuels? Both our speakers today are going to give you their views on the issues. Alex Epstein is going to be uh, from the Center for Industrial Progress and Bruce Nillis from the Sierra Club. Uh, Before we move ahead, I wanted to thank all the people that helped to make this event happen. All of the members of the student clubs, the objectivist group, and the Stanford Federalist Society who helped to uh, bring it together. The very hardworking staff of Stanford Law School. Um, Of course, the speakers and our moderator and everyone in the audience who took the time to either come here live or tune in via the live stream. Uh, Our moderator today is Professor Michael Wara. He is an expert in environmental and energy law. His research interests lie in the intersection of climate and energy policy. Wara's current scholarship focuses on three topic areas, regulation of greenhouse gas emissions, international climate policy, and electricity regulation. Wara was formerly a geoclimate, uh, sorry, a geochemist and a climate scientist and has published work on the history of El Nino, La Nina systems and its response to climate change. Wara received his PhD from Stanford Law School, sorry, his JD from Stanford Law School, his PhD from the University of California at Santa Cruz and his BA from Columbia College. Um, Thank you all for coming and please thank our speakers for being here. So uh, I'm going to introduce the the speakers, and I just at the outset want to say that I think these kinds of events are really great. I think it's important to discuss these questions and debate them vigorously. I mean, they're they're some of the most important of our time, and it's I think especially important within a university that this debate be joined and that all sides be heard. Um, so with that, um, to my right is Alex Epstein. Uh, he is an energy expert and philosopher and, pr- and president and founder, I yes. believe, of the Center for Industrial Progress. Um, Alex has written a book, Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, that make the arg- makes the argument that fossil fuels are an important part of our economic success and human well-being, and we should uh, treat them accordingly. Um, he's published widely in uh, the 
press and um, has, speaks on these issues, uh, economic and environmental benefits of fossil fuels at um, multiple institutions, including this one prior, um, on a prior occasion, and a number of other universities. And he has um, defended fossil fuel energy in a number of prominent debates, including with Bill McKibben, um, most notably. To my left, I guess to your, to my left, your right, sorry, is Bruce Nillis. Um, Bruce is the senior director of the Beyond Coal campaign at the Sierra Club. And uh, for those of you who don't know of it, the Beyond Coal campaign is the largest campaign in the organization's history and is set, has set as its goal the end of coal use in the United States as a fuel for producing electricity. And so far, I think I checked on your website this afternoon, 141 plants you claim? 143. 143, sorry, uh, has, has at least played an important role in shutting down 143 coal-fired power plants to date. Uh, prior to working with his work with the Sierra Club, Bruce worked as a staff attorney at Earth Justice in San Francisco um, and during the Clinton administration as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for uh, DOJ Environment and Natural Resources. He received his JD and BS uh, degrees from the University of Wisconsin. So thank you both for coming tonight, and I look forward to our conversation. Um, as a, at the outset, we're going to give both speakers 10 minutes to present uh, an opening statement, and then we'll have an opportunity for both speakers to ask each other a question, and I'm going to ask a couple of questions as well. And um, we'll have some closing remarks and then an opportunity for all of you to ask questions of either or both speakers as well. Um, so, Alex, would you like to go first? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, so in the last couple of days, there have been two fairly prominent stories related to this uh, topic. One I saw in Reuters titled, quote, climate scientists struggle to explain warming slowdown, uh, which focused on how it hasn't been very publicized, but warming, uh, globally speaking, has basically not occurred in the last uh, 15 years. Another story was um, in uh, Bloomberg and talked about how clean energy investment fell 22%, and it discussed how solar and wind have not lived up to expectations. Uh, so I got a bunch of emails from people really who were on my side really excitedly emailing me and saying, look, you know, your, your opponent has no chance, your case is proven. I just want to say uh, I don't agree with that, that type of thinking on these issues. I think it's really important when we're talking about something so important to our civilization, when we're dealing with really large possibilities, when we're talking about not using fossil fuels substantially, when we're talking about the risk of climate change, we really need to look at, at the big picture, to look at all the facts and to try to not have confirmation bias or that kind of thing. So today I'm going to give you my best account of the big picture as I, as I understand it. Um, and so for me, there are like two big picture issues uh, that are at stake tonight. One is the economic impact of using fossil fuels, and then one is the environmental and really primarily climate impact of using uh, fossil fuels. So let's start out with economic. I think it's, it's almost a, a somewhat untold story that in the last 30 years around the world has been one of the greatest uh, periods of, of life improvement uh, in human history. Um, I mean, if we look at things like life expectancy, standard of living, uh, in India alone, you've got over a billion people. And on average, they can expect to live seven years longer 
I mean, think about that. Think about just what seven years means about someone you love and then multiply that by a billion or 1.2 billion. You've got at least hundreds of millions of people, sometimes uh, even billions, who have for the first time they can have clean drinking water. I mean, think about what that means. Or for the first time they have a refrigerator that works. Or for the first time they have a, a decent paying job so they don't have to work on a farm uh, 16 hours a day. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's really remarkable. Uh, and for sure, there are many things that we can talk about that could have been improved during this industrialization. But overall, I mean, the results are just staggeringly, staggeringly uh, positive. Now, if we look at, well, what, what has caused this improvement? There are certainly a lot of factors you could point to. Uh, but I think one, for sure, indispensable factor is a massive, massive increase in the use of uh, affordable, reliable energy. I mean, without that, you're not powering the factories that are making everyone more productive. You're not powering the water purification plants. They're giving people clean water. You're not, you're not powering the agricultural equipment that is allowing someone to you know, go to bed with a full stomach consistently for the first time in his life. And it's not a coincidence that in every single case when these companies are multiplying their energy production by sometimes five times, sometimes more, they're all choosing the same type of energy to use. And that's fossil fuel energy or fossil fuel power. Now, why are they doing this? Well, because it is it was the most, you know, despite all the hype we might hear about other things, it was the most affordable, cheap uh, way to do it. And if it hadn't been for that, that kind of energy, that cheap, reliable energy, uh, they couldn't uh, have done it. And you know, just physically speaking, the reason why, it's not arbitrary, it's not just convention, it's because in the very nature of the fuel and our ability to harness it, you've got you know, fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas, they're really just compressed dead plants. And it turns out that there's such enormous quantities of them, particularly now we know about gas through fracking and, uh, and uh, coal. There's so much of them, and energy is so concentrated that you can just get as much as you want, really for the indefinite future, really, really affordably. And there's simply no other uh, energy, at least at this stage of, of technological development, that can come close. And this is why 87% of the time people use energy in today's world, they're using coal, oil, or natural gas to do all of these life-promoting life things. And also it's important to know that most of the energy growth that's occurred has been fossil fuels. So it's not that fossil fuels, you know, you'll hear coal is the fuel of the 19th century. Coal is the fastest growing source of energy in the world. Coal is right now the fuel uh, of the 21st century. Um, and you know, it's expected to overtake oil as the world's leading fuel. And again, for these reasons. And we can, you know, if there's no massive government effort to stop this, we can expect this to continue happening for the reason that energy is so important. Energy does all the things that I mentioned before. And if we look at like the world landscape, how much energy people have access to versus how much they would like to, Let's even take a place like Germany that's uh, supposed to be a model of energy efficiency, uses a lot less energy than we do. If everyone in the world were to have use the same amount of energy as the average German, you'd need over twice the energy production you have today. So if people are going to keep trying to move their lives forward, you know, to have more food, to have more clothing, to have more shelter, to have more medical care, they're, if left to their own devices, they're going to use uh, fossil fuels and you know, they, will, they will reap those benefits. Um, and speaking of Germany, um, 
Germany is also notable because it's allegedly the example of how solar and wind are the energies uh, of the future. Um, but that's not, that's not borne out by the evidence about Germany. They've spent directly hundreds of billions of dollars, arguably indirectly trillions of dollars, on trying to make solve the problems of solar and wind, which are basically one of them is that they're just fundamentally unreliable. And you'd think that given the media, you'd expect that they've shut down all kinds of coal plants and whatnot because they have all this new energy. In fact, they've shut down negative 12 coal plants. They're building, they're building new coal plants right now because they need cheap, reliable energy like everyone else and because they need to back up the unreliable solar and wind. So solar and wind right now are 0.5%, 0.5% after decades and decades of subsidies of world energy production. And almost all that 0.5% has to be either backed up by fossil fuels or nuclear or hydro. So that's the economic big picture. And I mean, the thing to take away is that you know, these economics really matter. Because if you can't use the best, cheapest fuel, that means that some people are going to starve. You know, it's just agriculture uh, will suffer. Some people won't be able to have as good a job. Economic growth will slow. The medical cure that we want won't be developed in time. Anytime you cut down access to energy, you're, ne you're necessarily cutting down someone's life and ultimately everyone's life. Now, same time, we absolutely have to look at the environmental uh, consequences, particularly the claim about climate, because if fossil fuels are making our planet unlivable, you know, that's, that would be a, a complete uh, tragedy. And I find it helpful to ask, because there are so many claims here, like what's the proven science about this versus what's speculative? And, and to be quick about it, the proven science is there is a greenhouse effect. It has a certain warming effect. And the question is, what's the magnitude of that effect? And ultimately, how does that, how does that impact human life? And what's really interesting, if we look at um, what's called the MDAT International Disaster Database, which is the leading thing that measures climate danger, which is ultimately how much danger have we faced, you'd expect that to be going up, especially over the last three decades as we emit massive amounts of CO2. In fact, in the last 80 years, it's gone down 98%. So you're 50 times safer from the climate than you used to be. So this, in my mind, is the number one most important fact about climate change. And then if we look at things like, well, what's happened to the temperature? Well, that statistic before about the last 15 years has been flat is pretty relevant. If we say, well, we need a larger time scale, the last 80 years has had a warming of only about half a degree Celsius. Uh, the 80 years before that, when there wasn't much CO2 emissions, had about half a degree. So these claims of dramatic warming have not been borne out by history. And if you say, well, what about going forward? Isn't there a consensus? Well, the real consensus among a broad spectrum of scientists is that there is a greenhouse effect. It's not that it's catastrophic. Because the claim that it's catastrophic is not based on proven science and is not confirmed by the proven science. It's based on models. And these models can be really intimidating, really scary. Uh, but you know, how do we judge them as non-scientists, as laymen? But really, with models, there's one really easy question to ask. If it's a predictive model, can the model predict the future? And unfortunately, these climate models, I can show you some graphs later, uh, have not. They're, they have the same degree of reliability, if not less, than the financial models that helped cause the financial uh, crisis. So we can see using a model the wrong way is very, very destructive. And unfortunately, these models, these speculative models, are being used to promote policies that would not only slow the growth of fossil fuels, which is necessary, but put it to a halt. And organizations like the Sierra Club 
really terrify me because they talk about almost outlawing all fossil fuels in the next couple of days and outlawing nuclear and outlawing most of hydro. So we really need to not only not restrict fossil fuels, but for sure, I mean, honestly, I'm terrified uh, of some of the things that the Sierra Club has said. You were right on time. I, I was using well a timer. Done. <laughs> Uh, quite a lead-in. Um, hopefully, I'm not going to terrify anybody. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight um, uh, and to have this discussion, which uh, I agree with the uh, professor is a very important one to be having. Uh, and the question that was asked is, should the government play a role in restricting the use of fossil fuels? And my answer is quite simple, that the government plays a very important role in making sure that the pollution associated with fossil fuels doesn't intrude on other individuals my own joy, my own right to enjoy and prosper in this planet shouldn't be affected because someone is dumping pollution unabated into my air so I can't breathe, or into the water so it's unsafe to breathe, uh, unsafe to drink. So that's the role of government in my mind, and it's particularly relevant to fossil fuels because when you look at what is the largest source of industrial pollution in the United States and around the world, it is associated with the mining and burning of fossil fuels. So the question is, what, should, what role should the government play? And let me back up and, and say my, my view of fossil fuels has evolved a long way in the last couple, three decades. I grew up in rural England, uh, and my home was heated with coal. My hot water was produced by burning coal. And when I go down to make breakfast in the morning, it was on a stove that was fired by coal. And it was also a time when coal was a big issue in the media in England because Margaret Thatcher had just been elected and she spent the first couple of years of her tenure crushing the miners' union in a year-long effort to break the backs of the miners. She did so and in the process put thousands of people out of work and devastated entire communities that were dependent on coal mining. And that really struck me at the young age of 12. This is a civilized society. Is this how we treat our hardworking fellow citizens? And so it wasn't until a couple decades later in the University of Wisconsin when I had the chance to come here to the United States and really understand that there's a, another side of the reliance on coal. Back in England, it seemed like there was no choice. But the good news is we have a lot of choices today that, don't mean, that mean we don't have to sacrifice our future. And so at the core of the question I think is relevant for tonight is how is it that the fossil fuel industry is getting away with more regulatory loopholes to pollute than any other industry in the United States. And why isn't Alex and his alleged portrayal of free markets saying, let's at least have a free level playing field for everybody and let the best prevail? For those of you in law school, which I'm guessing is most of you, and if you've had the pleasure of taking a class on environmental law, there's two bedrock statutes, the Clean Water Act and the Rivers and Harbors Act, which say, you are not allowed to take waste and dump it into waters of the United States. You and I took a pickup truck full of dirt and waste and dumped it into San Francisco Bay. We'd probably get a ticket the first time. The second time, we would probably get a criminal sanction because it is a criminal violation of our federal bedrock statutes to dump waste into waters of the United States. Unless, unless you are a mining company. So in Appalachia, in the last 20 years, they have blown up 400 mountains and taken the tops of those mountains to get the last seams of coal out and dumped it into river 
after river after river. 10,000 miles of rivers in Appalachia are gone forever, and they're not done. Imagine, think about the most favorite mountain range you have, the Rocky Mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains, upstate New York, the Adirondacks. Imagine if someone came in and said, by the way, just as sort of a, because we think it's okay, we're going to blow up 400 mountains. That would be a revolution, unless it's in Appalachia, because the coal industry has such a lock on politics that it has own, not only got this federal exemption, it is running roughshod over the people and the landscape of Appalachia. It is the oldest mountain range in the United States, and we are losing a mountain every couple of weeks. That is not fair, that is not American, and that is, should not be allowed in the United States in the 21st century. So where else does the coal industry enjoy loopholes, and where else does it get away with doing things that no one else is allowed to do? Let me talk about mercury pollution. Mercury is a potent neurotoxin. Many of you may be familiar with the phrase, mad as a hatter. That comes from people who used to make hats, and they use mercury in the rims to hold them stiff. And the people who made hats became mad because they inhaled a lot of mercury vapor, hence mad as a hatter. We've known for a long time that mercury is very poisonous. For 20 years, excuse me, for almost 23 years, there has been one industry, only one, that has been allowed to dump its mercury unregulated into the waters and the airs in the United States. When we passed the Clean Air Act amendments in 1990, signed by George Bush I, every industry had to put in place, under EPA regulations, restrictions on putting in place technology to limit your mercury emissions. Every industry except for one. And EPA was instructed, instead of imposing requirements on coal-fired power plants, was to study them for several years and work out were they a part of the problem, and if they were, then begin a process to finally do something about coal plants. Last year, 23 years later, thanks to the efforts of Lisa Jackson and a lot of citizens who pushed the EPA to do its job, EPA finally put in place regulations restricting mercury pollution from coal-fired power plants a generation later. And the cost? One in 10 women of childbearing age in the United States has enough mercury in her body that it presents a serious risk of loss of IQ and long-term brain damage to her child. These are the facts, and this is what the industry gets away with that no one else gets away with. So whether you're a libertarian or not, it seems to me that something fundamentally wrong in the United States when we allow fossil fuels mm -hmm. to get away with doing something no one else is allowed to do. If I took a bottle of mercury and dumped in, in San Francisco Bay. That would be a crime. Coal-fired power plant in Texas is putting out 2,000 pounds of mercury every year. That is a ton of mercury. It takes one-eighth, excuse me, one-eighth of a teaspoon to pollute a small lake. So when you put out this kind of mercury, you're literally making all the fish in a very large area unsafe to eat. So that's the role of government, in my mind, to finally do what o the Obama administration did last year and said, no, no, we're not going to allow you, the coal industry, to have a special deal. We're going to crack down and make you play by the same rules as everybody else, and it's finally high time. And you know what happened? Those coal plants that the professor mentioned were beginning to retire? Many of these coal plants are retiring because once they're actually asked to do their fair share, once they're actually asked to internalize the cost of the pollution that we all have been bearing instead of the industry that's been enjoying the profits, then those coal plants make no economic sense. 
Alex talks about affordable. Let me give you an example of how unaffordable coal is. There is a coal plant that was built last year, came online last year, one of the ones we didn't stop, in North Dakota. The Great River Energy Spirit Wood Coal Plant, 100 megawatts, cost $440 million to build. It's not running. Brand new coal plant, and it's not running. And it's not running because once you put on pollution controls for mercury, for nitrogen oxide, for sulfur dioxide, even before you get to carbon. So let's assume somehow that the, all the scientists are wrong, we'll take Alex's position on, on climate change. But let's just assume that, and I think he agrees, that mercury and sulfur and nitrogen oxide are pollutants. If you simply force the industry to put those controls on, coal cannot compete in the marketplace today. And the good news is clean energy is booming in the United States. It was an interesting choice of statistics that Alex chose because if you actually pulled and typed in clean energy into Google today, you would see today was a big announcement out of the solar industry that solar has had its best year ever. You know the one generation source, the only generation source that came online in March last month? It wasn't coal, it wasn't natural gas, it wasn't nuclear, it wasn't hydro, it was solar. We installed 44 megawatts of solar last month. And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission said two weeks ago, so if you went back and Google Clean Energy two weeks ago, that since the beginning of this year, 87% of all the new generation in the United States was not fossil fuels. 87%. So when we think about the problems of fossil fuels and the situation that maybe 30 years ago we didn't actually have a choice, that is a false choice today. And we here in the United States are showcasing how to do this state by state. And it's not just California leading by a great example and creating a lot of jobs. That terribly liberal place of, that terribly liberal place of Oklahoma is installing thousands of megawatts. The number one state in the country for installing wind power, it's not Massachusetts, it's not California, Texas. And why does Texas have a booming clean energy sector? Because that crazy, crazy radical George W. Bush been put in place 10, more than 10 years ago. The foundations that what we're building on today is one of the most exciting clean energy development uh, examples across the country in the state of Texas. So this is now mainstream, and clean energy is growing in leaps and bounds. That's why Walmart announced today it's installing solar on 1,000 schools, and it is booming. So I look forward to a discussion because when I, from where I sit, there is a great story and a great reality coming together as American ingenuity is putting its head together to solve this problem. And looking backwards to 19th century, century fuel seems a little outdated, at least. So now we're going to have a, a five-minute each exchange of question and answer on the part of the two debaters. Alex? I believe he asks me first. Oh, I'm sorry. OK. Bruce? So. Alex, when you think about fossil fuels, and I believe you have said in the past that, um, that there are certain pollution problems, even if putting aside carbon, things like sulfur and nitrogen and uh -huh. some pollution from, from fossil fuels, there are about 100 million Americans that regularly breathe air that is unsafe in the United States, most of that pollution from fossil fuels. Is that OK? And should there be days when we as individuals are having our liberty impinged because fossil fuels are making it impossible to breathe and sending people to the hospital? Um, okay, yeah, I'd be happy to address that. And I think that, that raises most of the issues that came up in the 
uh, the opening statement. So at the beginning, um, I really wanted to stress from the outset the issue of, of the big picture, how to, how to make sure that when we're thinking of these things, we make sure to, to factor in uh, the total context. Like, so for example, let's say, let's say that I had some sort of opposition to solar energy, just some sort of intrinsic opposition, which I don't. And I just, you know, I just look at the facts about it and I don't believe it should get special treatment. Um, I could easily, or wind power, I could go to China and I could do reports and I could show you that some of the most disgusting mining practices in the world uh, pertain to the very non-renewable elements that are used for the massive resources that are required to try to efficiently, unsuccessfully unfortunately, to efficiently convert sunlight or wind into energy. So these are some of the most unethical practices in the world I could point to discuss and I could say, should we live in a world where someone is at risk because of, of mining? And probably if you supported solar, we'd say, no, you have to look at the full context. You can't say that because something is imperfect, therefore it should be illegal. You have to, and this is the same thing with any kind of pollution. Absolutely, pollution, you need to, you need to make pollution illegal. You need to have clear laws against, uh, uh, you need to have clear laws against pollution. But what constitutes pollution in a given context can never be there's no waste of any kind anywhere, especially since now we have very, very precision instruments that can detect unbelievably small amounts of things that people can do quote unquote studies where they find correlations and say there are causation. So one of the reasons why I said at the outset that if you look at the broad trend of human life and human health in every single country around the world, as we're using this allegedly poisonous coal and oil and natural gas, our lives are getting dramatically, dramatically longer, and they wouldn't if we didn't have that kind of caliber of energy. So insofar as there's any negative, like insofar as I don't believe at all, 100 million of us are, are breathing harmful air, I don't know what that means. I'm not breathing harmful air. Um, everyone I know is living incredibly long, incredibly healthy by all historical standards because of, of energy. So. Most of the studies that Bruce mentions, I think, um, you know, have been debunked. But even if they weren't, even if you could say, okay, coal adds something, th something to the air where your life is a month shorter, something like two months shorter, it already made your life seven years longer. So do you really blame coal for that? I mean, if you have like chemotherapy and it lengthened your life by seven years, and at the end you died from something related to that, would you say, oh, chemotherapy is evil? We need to make it illegal. Um, how much time do I have? Okay, so essentially, you know, this, is, this is what's going on. Pollution here is being used uh, as a red herring in order to oppose different forms of energy. And as I said, it could be used to oppose anything. Now, unfortunately, uh, Bruce didn't address at all my big picture story of what's been happening, of the massive improvements of human life, all of which would have been impossible, or nearly all of which would have been impossible had we followed the advice of the Sierra Club 30 years ago. So all this seven-year increase in life expectancy due to coal, that wouldn't have happened. And there's no evidence you know, uh, that, it would, that it would happen now. So the big picture positive is being evaded. And at the same time, the incredible policy of the Sierra Club is being evaded. It's not just about do we disagree about what exact law should apply to coal, because absolutely law should apply to coal. It's the idea, should coal be illegal in the world? Should oil be illegal in the world? Should natural gas ultimately be illegal in the world? Should nuclear power be illegal in the world? Should large dams be illegal? Every single one of those positions, the Sierra Club, which Bruce represents, 
takes. So it's a real dodge to just fixate on, oh, I'm against this aspect of coal. Um, you know, I, I, we're not going to get in an argument about the minutia of mercury if you think that the technology as such is wrong and should not be allowed under any circumstances. You should simply say, I'm against every form of proven practical energy. I think they should be outlawed, and I think we should be forced to rely uh, on solar and wind, even though they have never in any society ever generated reliable, affordable energy. That's the track record. And you know, if you think you, know, you guys are energy geniuses who can make unworkable things work, then I think you should invest your own money, uh, but not, not throw away the rest of our futures. Return for a question. Um, yeah, so as, as I said, I mean, I use the word terrifying deliberately. Um, being anti-coal, being anti-oil, being anti-gas, being anti-nuclear, uh, being substantially anti-hydro, the Sierra Club's list of achievements is mostly, you know, a lot of dams that it shut down. And even I read something particularly disturbing, which is that even if, I, even if windmills hurt enough birds, they shouldn't be allowed. So I'm curious, I mean, honestly, what do you expect to happen to human life I mean, I don't expect these things to happen, but if they did, what, what would you expect to happen? And how can you convince us that it's not, I mean, just mass suffering and death, given everything we know about energy? Um, where to begin? Um, so, let's, so let's talk about clean energy, because you, you've sort of put up this boogeyman that um, we have no choice but to live under a world dominated by fossil fuels. And you sort of remind me of these 19th century robber barons who were saying, for the good of society, just give us the ability to say, regardless of the health impacts, regardless of the landscape impacts, we're going to do whatever's good for what we do with this America. But yet, there are real serious health impacts to people who are living next to these mining operations, and real serious health impacts to people who are living next to these coal plants. And um, we know how to deal with these pollution issues, but you're not agreeing that, that we should actually fix it. But, but let me answer the question, because the, the exciting thing of the last 10 years of doing this work is that coal used to be about 50% of our energy mix. Uh, and sure, it's been around for 100 years and served us well. It doesn't mean we have to keep doing the same thing. Now we know, through a rigorous scientific process, that there are some significant trade-offs associated with using coal, particularly when we have alternatives that are being widely used in our new country. And it's not just the Sierra Club. Warren Buffett next week is unveiling the largest solar project ever in the United States. He's putting his own money. Is he terrifying? Is he some radical lefty loony? No. Is Walmart, who's installing a thousand rooftop solar projects over the next several years, they're putting up these projects because they make good economic sense. Look at the top states investing in clean energy. Aside from California, it's that crazy place called Kansas. I can tell you if Governor Brownback was here on the panel with me, I would agree with him probably on nothing except for the wind development that's going on in Kansas. Mayor Lancaster, the mayor of Lancaster here in California, a staunch Republican, just announced last week he's going to require all new homes in California in his city. Uh, it's a democratic process, right? He was elected, and what they decided in Lancaster is that every new home is going to install solar because it's good for economic development locally. He also believes in climate change and wants to do some good stuff in Lancaster. So there's a lot of really exciting things, and the list is a very long list. And fossil fuel use, indeed, in the United States, coal use in particular, is shrinking. Alex said it is growing around the globe. That's a questionable claim. But what's important here in the United States is that we realize we have a lot of alternatives. And we are investing in those alternatives. And so 
California is on track to get 30% of its clean energy by the end of this decade. Iowa's already at 20%, excuse me, 25% of its energy from wind power. So there are states leading the way, and to me, that's what's creating jobs, and it doesn't have all the trade-offs of fossil fuels. So when you think about, we have choices today, which we may not have had 50 years ago. Why would we continue to invest in something that has a track record of producing significant environmental problems, both for the local community and threatening long-term well-being on this planet with climate change? Thank you both. Now it's my turn. Right. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Alex. I'm going to ask you a question first. Um, so you paint a very dark picture of what might happen were the Sierra Club to accomplish all of its objectives, um, and leaving that outcome. Side, I think we all recognize that the Sierra Club, despite its best efforts, probably won't accomplish all of its objectives, and that the consensus policies that have been put forward to deal, um, in particular, with climate change are, are not ones that are going to shut down the fossil fuel industry. It will make the fossil fuel industry pay a price for carbon in one way or another, mm -hmm. but they're unlikely to lead to the end of either natural gas fire or coal fire generation in this country. So. My question for you is, given your stated commitment in your writings to um, you know, allocation of property rights mm -hmm. and allowing for, at, at that point, allowing for markets to sort out what the most economic uses of a particular set of property rights are, um, how do you, what do you make of allocating property rights to CO2 emissions from the United States and letting markets decide what, you know, either via a tax or via a cap and trade program? and letting markets decide what the most efficient use of those resources might be. Um, so and, and I just want to, I, I try to be really as precise as I could um, about the way I think about climate change, and yet on several occasions I've been accused of not believing in climate change, not listening to scientists. So uh, let me explain. <laughs> Everything human beings do, do, first of all, changes climate somehow. Uh, I mean, every, you know, the climate is a system. The question is, what's the magnitude? And there's a greenhouse effect. So the question is, what's the magnitude and what's the impact? And so my goal is, first and foremost, let's quantify the impact if there is a negative impact. And the fact is, and no one has addressed this, no one has refuted, I've never, Bill McKibben didn't refute it, I don't know anyone who has refuted this fact because it's just demonstrable from the data, that the increase, I mean, maybe, maybe it'll help to show it. Um, you know, that the dramatic, I just keep my slides here just in case. We have CO2 emissions and climate-related deaths. There's a complete, there's a complete inverse correlation. Yeah, deaths, the D. Um, there's a complete inverse correlation between the two. So the whole idea of fossil fuel companies have to pay extra for the damage that's been done to the climate that's counting on the idea that more people are being harmed. But in fact, they are not. It's the opposite. So if, to the extent there's anything that would be negative in the climate based on what's happened, and this is despite decades of claims that this is going to be disaster. It's not like this theory just came up today. It's noise. It's not even detectable because the positive impact of fossil fuel-powered energy and technology is so profound on climate safety 
that that life has been getting so much better in that respect. So absolutely not. There should be no penalty whatsoever for the industry that's made our climate a lot safer. In fact, all the people who claim to bear, care about climate should be thanking them. So absolutely, you have to have property rights, but you have to have property rights defined on the basis of science, of what you can actually prove. And it has to also take into account the right of people to produce energy. And this is a right that, that Bruce is, is continuously denying and still hasn't addressed the idea of banning coal worldwide, banning gas worldwide, banning oil, oil for God's sake. There's no, like, in the foreseeable future, oil is the fuel of transportation. 95% of transportation comes from oil. Agriculture is based on oil and natural gas. Sierra Club wants to go beyond gas. You, I mean, fortunately, people are not going to take this, not going to do this, but to the extent you do it, people starve, literally starve, uh, like they would have had we not used these technologies in the first place. So um, the Sierra Club is in, a, in one sense extreme, but in another sense, it's mainstream. If you take the idea that, which is very common, that we need to reduce CO2 emissions by 80% over the next couple of decades, um, you know, which is a lot of people around the world believe, I think, with uh, without a real scientific basis, if you take that seriously, then you do have to you do have to just completely shut down China's growth. You have to shut down India's growth. You do have to compromise uh, the American standard of living. So I think when people talk about oh, you just need to drive a Prius or you just need to do this, that's just window dressing. That actually wouldn't accomplish the goal. Nor is what California is doing would remotely. So if this were true on these premises, you would have to do what the Sierra Club is saying. What I'm saying is that both that quote-unquote mainstream view and the Sierra Club's view, uh, you know, is amounts to, to ruining billions and billions of lives. But more directly, it makes every life worse. Thank you. I just want to ask you about, uh, you know, and, this, and this reflects some of the things that Alex has said, also, uh, maybe um, my sense that um, the Sierra Club, you know, you lead the Beyond Coal campaign. Um, the Sierra Club has come out very strongly against other sources of fossil energy, in particular projects. And I mean, in, I mean the Keystone XL pipeline, for example. Um, they use the horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing to um, enhance recovery of natural gas. Um, not all fossil fuels are created equal. And I think the story that you told about coal is, is, even if some in the room disagree with it, a consensus view about the air pollution and water pollution impacts of coal-fired electricity in this country and, and in other countries as well. I mean, if you want bad air quality, you don't need to just go, go um, west from here, probably, not east, right? Um, so given the current focus on Keystone, um, and the, the popular, in the popular imagination and in the work, the popular work, the, the public work that so many of the environmental groups um, have been doing, at the same time, um, the Obama administration has been busy not finalizing a number of rules, in particular the greenhouse gas new source performance standards that would have basically, at least in a business sense, ended construction of coal-fired power plants in this country. How, as an organization, do you make those trade-offs and balance um, those priorities? Because I think many in the energy community would say that we should focus on coal first. What you're doing in your day-to-day -day work is a much more important priority uh, than, in terms of climate impacts than oil coming south from Canada. Sure. 
Um, I, I think it's a great question. So when we think about how do we, we the Sierra Club, we've been around for 120 years, um, and it wasn't really until the last couple of decades we started focusing on energy issues. Most of our legacy for the first 100 years was focused on preserving many of our great national landscapes, Yosemite National Park, Cascades uh, National Park. Um, that was the work of all the folks who came before me. And the real focus on fossil fuels was because there is a consensus in the scientific community. The National Academy of Sciences in this country and all the developed countries of the world, they all agree that climate change is real and we need urgent action to cut emissions over the next two to three decades. So when we think about what is the framework we use for our policy advocacy, it's, well, what does the science say? And the way we read the science is that we got to do something pretty quick. And we have a special responsibility, we would argue, here in the United States, because the vast majority of that carbon in the atmosphere came from us. Yes, China is number one today in terms of carbon emissions, but when you actually look up who put most of that pollution up in the atmosphere, it's the incredible industrial activity we've had over the last 100 years. So it's kind of unfair for us to ask anybody to do their fair share if we don't do ours first. So from the Sierra Club's perspective, given that we are the greatest country with the greatest potential to help solve this problem and the big legacy of having caused a lot of it, let's get busy and showcase how to do it. And then let's partner and work with other countries around the world to also do it. So when we think about fossil fuels, the science says we essentially need to be off fossil fuels in the next two decades if we're going to have a prayer of preventing runaway climate change. Two decades. Lots of time. And so when we think about where are we focusing our advocacy, as you mentioned, we started off, that was a decade ago, with a real focus on coal. And the reason we focused on coal initially was because coming out of the Bush first term was a plan to take the country in a radical direction which was to build as many as 200 new coal-fired power plants. We didn't build any coal plants in the 1980s, 1990s, and we were beginning to move away from coal. Bush gets in and proposes under the Cheney Energy Plan to build as many as a couple hundred new coal plants that would essentially lock us in for the next 40, 50 years. Coal plants are really expensive. Cost about one to two billion dollars a piece. They last for about 40, 50 years. The carbon emissions from those 200 coal plants would have put the US in a position of being a very large source of pollution for decades to come. So the reason we focused on coal first was because that was the biggest lock-in threat. If these coal plants and this investment is made, it's game over. So for the last 10 years, we've been working hard to make sure those coal plants didn't get built. We've successfully stopped 90% of those projects. And in the process, lights have not gone out. And indeed, what's happened is community after community said, you know, coal is actually a bad bet. Let's do something smarter. And so that's why we're seeing record investments in clean energy. We've also realized coal is a big part of the problem about a third of the problem, but oil and natural gas are also doing a big piece, and we can't solve this problem unless we also combat those two problems. <clears throat> natural gas has suddenly burst onto the scene because of the advent of hydro hydraulic fracturing, which is now indicating that we have huge stores of natural gas, and if we drill and burn all that natural gas, that's so much carbon that we're going to be in a world of hurt. So we have a lot of work right now to make sure we're not doing major investments to lock in huge amounts of uh, natural gas that make it impossible to phase it out over the next 30, uh, 20, 30 years. And then on the oil front, oil is just a bad bet all around. We import a lot of oil. We send a lot of money to countries that we don't like. It is a huge national security issue. It's a huge um, environmental issue. And we have the technology today. I think electric cars are one of the most exciting things ever to be made, and California is leading the way. We know how to get up oil. We can do this, and let's do it over the next 20 years. But we're going to have to fix both the coal piece, the oil piece, and the natural gas. 
Thank you. So now we're going to have closing remarks from both of you. Uh, Alex, you can begin. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for coming. So the past couple segments, uh, I focused quite a bit on uh, the stance that the Sierra Club is taking against all forms uh, of practical energy and wanting to outlaw them. Uh, and, and Bruce hasn't uh, even acknowledged them, let alone really defended them. Uh, so I've made that point. I mean, if, if those things were taken remotely seriously, uh, it would just you know, be an act of, of mass destruction. So I want to leave that aside and just talk about the positive. Uh, because we really should be excited about what has been happening in the world over the last 30 years. It's just simply unbelievable. Again, you can tell me just one country to have people living seven years longer on average. And if you think, and if you think correctly that they don't have the right laws as far as coal pollution, and India has a lot of problems, China has a lot of problems, I absolutely think there should be better laws. If they've gotten that much better without the right laws, imagine how much better they would get with the right laws. Uh, so there's just this unbelievable upside. And the science, the actual proven science, is, is totally in favor of the idea that this upside can continue. That instead of the perspective that you know, America has done this wrong by putting CO2 in the atmosphere, it's actually the perspective that other countries can be more and more like America from the perspective of, yes, putting CO2 in the atmosphere, our machines breathe just like we do. But in the process of doing all the work, the machines create an amazing standard of living uh, that there's no evidence is, you know, anything is going to go the other way. So that's just such an exciting prospect that the world can get uh, better and better and better. And just one more thought on the science. It's a multidisciplinary scientific question what to do about something like CO2 emissions. You need to know what's the evidence about CO2 emissions, what's the evidence about economics, because you're, you're trying to put together all of these different things to find out ultimately What's the scientific answer to what will benefit uh, human life? And fortunately, not only do we have a great form of energy and fossil fuel power that can you know, continue to move us forward. In fact, we have two others. We have nuclear power and hydroelectric power. Again, also very unfortunately held back by Sierra Club. In the 70s, before Sierra Club and others started demonizing nuclear power, it was displacing coal plants. I have nothing against coal, but you know, you shouldn't stop the nuclear revolution either. So we've got this unbelievable positive potential, and yet these fears turn out to be, with all the evidence we have, completely based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate. And so what we find is it's true many people in that field, in the field of predicting climate, say, yes, our models are good. But that's why they need auditing by other sciences. That's why science, brilliant scientists like Freeman, Dyson, dozens, even thousands of others have said, look, your models are not good. Statisticians have criticized them. And this should all be great news. This is exciting that we don't face this like complete, almost Shakespearean tragedy of having the energy we need to live also causing us to have an unlivable planet and forcing us to depend on other uh, forms of energy. So I think there's really, really great cause uh, for optimism in the world. The next 30 years could see even more progress uh, than the last 30 years, but it absolutely requires, um, you know, embracing industry, looking at the big picture, uh, and not, you know, not demonizing the, you know, the lifeblood of progress because you can find some flaw in it. So, you know, I'm very optimistic, but it means we should not restrict fossil fuels. We should have proper laws, but setting them back sets back progress.
So three years ago, we um, at the Sierra Club um, began working with a small band of Native Americans just outside of Las Vegas, the Wampa Band of Paiute. They're a little, they're a federally recognized tribe, and they happen to live right next to a 40-year-old coal-fired power plant. This tribe has been neglected by the state uh, regulators. The US EPA and the federal government has clearly uh, abandoned its trust responsibilities. And for 40 years, this power plant is operating without modern pollution control, not because we don't know how to build scrubbers. There are scrubbers that were installed 30 years ago in other power plants. But this plant has been operating, polluting the heck out of that small tribe for 40 years. And I really didn't get a flavor for how bad it was, and I sort of worry sometimes I get a little numb hearing stories traveling around the country about people being affected, um, living next to fossil fuel activity. But it was really brought home. A reporter from the local TV station wanted to do a sort of David and Goliath fight, wanted to tell the story about the tribe and its allies fighting this big utility in Nevada. Uh, he was going to do two pieces. He was going to do a story about the position from the Moapa perspective and how they're living in the coal plant, and then the perspective of the company that is defending its coal as coal being a bright part of Nevada's future. And he ended up doing three pieces because he went out the first time and interviewed the tribe and they talked about how they regularly were doused with high levels of pollution. And the particular problem was they have these old or these large coal ash ponds where they dump all the coal ash after coal is burned. And on any windy day that literally blows across the reservation, which is literally from me to you from the power plant. And the reporter went out, talked to the tribe, heard the story, and it was a real heart-wrenching story about how this tribe has been living. And then he went and toured the facility and got the PR spin about how great this power plant is and it's modern, blah, 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 even though it's 40 years old. He stopped and happened to take some samples of dust as he was getting out of his SUV um, with all of his equipment. And he took it back to a lab in Las Vegas and got it infected because this was the same dust that was blowing across onto the tribe's reservation. And uh, he got a lab report back saying, if this dust was on the counters in this lab, I would have to shut this lab down. The levels of cadmium and lead and other really toxic chemicals that were found in this dust blowing all over this power plant and onto the tribe were dangerous to human health and the environment. And so that really, to me, brought home that people are literally living in the shadows of these. So when I hear Alex saying we should embrace industry and we should embrace fossil fuels, fact that people are having a really hard time because fossil fuels are acting like alcohol. And that shouldn't be allowed here in these United States. Now, the good ending to the story is that on Saturday, there's a march that the Moapa are leading starting from, up from the reservation to a brand new solar facility that's getting built to help power LA on the reservation, a 15-mile walk. And we'll be celebrating the fact that last week, after three years of battle, the utility, which had been embracing coal and saying coal is so great and the future for Nevada, the CEO came out and said, you know, coal is dumb. Coal makes no sense. And after three years, they now have put forward a plan to phase out their coal plants over the next decade, build record amounts of energy in the next six years. And together, we have done that will make a world of difference for the lives of not just the people who live next to that power plant, but for everyone in Nevada, and also because of the effects of climate change, it will make a profound difference globally. And to me, that's a kind of can-do result that we need to be doing around this country and saying, 
no, it is not fair that fossil fuels get to extract the price from its neighbors. That is not America. That at the end of the day, everyone needs to do their fair share, and I will bet you, once fossil fuels start paying their fair share, clean energy wins hands down. All right, now, thank you both very much. Now, we're gonna open it up for questions from you. Hopefully, continue the conversation. So we've got two microphones, have mics. and why don't people just uh, maybe form lines behind the microphones and we can take turns. Uh, I'd like you both to give me an economic number. We've got America going along as they are. As I understand it, the Sierra Club says the price of carbon and all that is too low. It isn't paying for the externalities. So I'd like you to give me a number of roughly what you think we should charge in an extra carbon tax reflected back on gasoline gallons. Should we in have a $20 per gallon tax? Would that be about the externality? For the free enterpriser, I'd like the other way. Basically, America cripples you. It forces you to put on pollution standards that is hurting your, uh, your carbon coal factories. How much should we subsidize, guarantee the insurance of nuclear power plants, et cetera, to make, uh, put carbon producers on an equal footing with what we're currently doing now with subsidizing other people? minus, uh, give people a dollar or two cheaper gasoline? Would that be about the level? How, does this make sense? If it doesn't, sorry about that, I'll, I'll retract it. So, so, my, quick, so, no, no, I, so my quick answer is, um, there's a lot of discussion about how to reduce carbon pollution in the United States, and one very good idea is to put a price on carbon. How much? But that is but one question, or one way to solve the problem. I'm From just what, asking something that I think you so the goal is to get to essentially zero carbon for the next two decades. So the question is, what's the appropriate price to get you there? Now, I would say there's other ways to get to that same outcome. Sure. We've had enormous success in cleaning up our rivers and cleaning up our air in many parts of this country, not through a cap and trade or a price on pollution, because we have said, you've got to phase out that pollution in a reasonable amount of time through a regulatory scheme that provides similar certainty and doesn't have some of the challenges of having financial system to get to that income that end goal. So for example, when we decided lead in paint was a really bad idea because lots of kids in the United States were lead poisoned, we didn't say let's put a price on lead paint. We said we need to end it. We need to stop putting lead in paint because it is a public health hazard. So there are ways to do it. So I'm giving you both answers, which is you could do it through price if you get it to the right outcome, which is essentially zero carbon in the next 20 years. Or you could do as EPA is beginning to do with coal-fired power plants, which is to say, in a certain amount of time, you need to start lowering your pollution, hopefully all in the right trajectory to get to, again, zero for the next couple decades. I, I really wanted to hear a number. Like, if it's price. So if price is a valuable thing, I'd like to know, like, what's it? Because I have my own idea of what the number would be. So I'm curious. Because it is helpful for people to know, like, what should they expect to pay for gasoline? If that were the way to go. Yeah, okay. But that's, that's one thing on the table. It's, you regard it as a legitimate option. So just give, like, a ballpark. I wouldn't do it through a price on carbon. I would do it through regulations. The reason we have fuel-efficient cars in the United States is not for the price on carbon. It's because we said we want to stretch oil. It's a rare resource more and more, right? So instead of saying 
40 miles per gallon, let's, let's incentivize and continue to build out electric cars. You could do that through regulation. Okay, I sort of like the number. Um, fuel efficiency standards, by the way, uh, don't lead to reduced consumption of oil. We consume more oil uh, than ever in this country. So, uh, yes, it is. But okay, so um, let me answer my part of it. No subsidies for anyone. You have objective laws based on science, and so certainly uh, you shouldn't be punished for emitting CO2 given the facts about the impacts because your co2 is a better energy producer but you you get rewarded by being paid else. like anything else well so if i think i'm a better anything than anyone else i can i can charge for it so i mean why do we pay okay. why do you pay more for oil no su no subsidies for anyone but you really need scientific laws because right now we have a lot of there's a lot of um unfortunately because of organizations like Sierra Club for nuclear power, you have so many irrational things that they have to go through. So those need to be taken away too. You need a really scientific thing based on real evidence. No subsidies for anyone. So you agree we should get rid of oil subsidies? Yeah, absolutely, if you know what oil subsidies are. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, Obama just proposed a well, budget which took $4 billion. Okay, but the, the official energy, um, you know, our own energy agency, which, you know, under Bush and Obama, uh, you know, ranks subsidies when it when it calculates subsidies it says you know anywhere from 40 to 90 times greater subsidies are received by uh solar and wind so i agree that those should be abolished yeah absolutely but i i based on reading your website i think you have a very confused idea of what subsidies are like subsidies are when someone takes my money and forces me to uh buy a windmill that then also increases the price of my electricity if the oil industry gets to mark something as a business expense and still pays 44% or something of, uh, you know, of its income to the government, I don't consider that a subsidy. So the wind industry just proposed to phase out all subsidies in the next five years. Oil industry has never put that offer on the table. Why is that? Again, you're, you're calling something a subsidy that is marking a business expense. So if the wind industry actually was willing to get rid of subsidies, I would love to join that PR campaign. So I guess I thought this debate was originally going to be about the place that government would have or would not have in uh, regulating uh, fossil fuel costs and productions. Uh, and it seems like both uh, of you have, have sort of moved increasingly towards characterizing the, opposite, the other, other uh, you know, side as totalitarian. Um, I feel like most persons in the room uh, believe that there is a place uh, for fossils for the foreseeable future. But at the same time, I, I don't think anyone here uh, really says that the government should not have any place at all uh, regulating uh, things like emissions, particularly uh, things like mercury or uh, sulfur and nitrogen uh, you know, oxides. Um, so the first is I, I wanted to know what your positions were regarding whether government had a legitimate uh, place in regulating emissions at all. Um, and uh, the second was, would you speak a little bit more to, towards load balancing as we approached uh, sort of greater uh, supply from uh, wind and solar? Because it seems that you have a hard time without nuclear or coal making up your baseline. Uh, and while they're great, you kind of either need gas for your peakers or you need something else for uh, general load when, when the sun's not shining and the wind is, is, is intermittent. Um. 
All right, let me address the, the, the first one I think was more directed at me. Yeah, so you know, absolutely. I mean, when I, I think what, what we are both taking as a baseline is that the government needs laws to protect against things that are obviously uh, pollution or harm. So if you poison someone's land or water with a certain amount of mercury, that should not be legal. Now, I think we definitely disagree on the scientific standards and scientific practices that are um, involved in saying X amount is dangerous because in in any kind of um, you know issue of poison or contamination, it's all about dosage uh, and context, right? I mean, if you look at something like caffeine, you like if I start eating plutonium and you start eating caffeine, you will die first before me. Like so, that doesn't mean you want to be around a lot of plutonium. It doesn't mean you need to avoid caffeine, but it just means that it's an issue of dosage. So unfortunately, there's a really bad approach to science, which is rampant in our government and certainly in environmental organizations called the linear no threshold hypothesis. And this basically what it does is it says if there's a large amount of, say, radiation, if that's harmful and causes radiation sickness, which it certainly does, then any amount of radiation is harmful. And that's flatly untrue. And in fact, the evidence suggests that low-level radiation is beneficial. So you always have to be on the lookout for the linear no threshold hypothesis. But for sure, you need to have scientific things. Now, as for just an idea, you know, I listened to some interviews with Bruce on the other thing. Uh, back in 2009, he said, of course, we need natural gas to back up the intermittent sources. But, you know, since then, you know, Sierra Club has become beyond gas. And, you know, there's a big whole thing about accepting $26 million from the gas industry and then to fund beyond coal. And like, whether that's a variable or not, I actually think it's that the more suspicious thing to me is that once gas became practical with fracking, then they opposed it. Because the environmentalist movement, interestingly, has never supported a practical source of energy in its entire history. Um, so the load, balance, the, question. the load balancing question, thank you. Um, so it's a great one, right, which is intuitively you think, huh, sun only shines at night and the wind only blows when the wind works. Well, lo and behold, in the United States, we have something called a grid. And the, way we, the reason we have an electric grid that connects all these different power sources, coal, nuclear, wind, etc., is because at any given time, some of these power plants may not be operating. So this past summer, one of the largest sources of power in California, San Onofre nuclear power plant, suddenly went offline. And you know what? The lights didn't go out. Why? Because we have a grid. And that's what grid operators do. They make sure we have enough power at any given time. So you think about wind power, and one of the reasons uh, wind has grown so rapidly is because when you have a grid that stretches, take the grid in the Midwest, it stretches from North Dakota down to Missouri. At any given time in the day, there's usually the wind blowing somewhere in the, in the entire region that is connected by the wires. And when it's not, there's other resources to back it up. Now today, do we have all the technology today in, uh, 2013 to go to 100% wind and solar, there are technical questions about whether that can be done. And no one's suggesting that. Alex at one point says we should do it in two days. No, we're saying do it in 20 years. Modesto just put out a, a request for peaking purposes and clean energy for uh, its electricity needs. It got a proposal that came back which was a mix of wind and enlarged battery. The awesome new DC funded project out of here in Silicon Valley, creating jobs, testing a new way to work wind and solar into producing reliable 24 uh, 7 uh, electricity and Modesto. That's the kind of ingenuity that's going to solve this problem, right? We know how to do this. And when you think about where we are on clean energy, there are states, as I mentioned, South Dakota and Iowa, that are already at 30% wind power. 
Well, if cold's only at 40%, and we're already getting to 30% with wind, doesn't that indicate we can get pretty damn close, as we're seeing in many places, to essentially eliminate all that coal? And we can do that pretty quickly? And then we've got to work on the next piece, like how do we get rid of the gas, and that's going to take a little longer. Uh, but we're doing this. And so when Texas had a day this past summer when they got 57% of the power from wind, we were all jumping up and down saying, we know how to do this because we're doing this. And I have complete faith for folks who run the grid in California who are leading the country, folks in the upper Midwest who are integrating records amounts of wind. If this stuff keeps getting at it, we're going to work this out. And it's not rocket science. That goes to my question, which is about the technological innovations that are necessary to make what you're proposing possible. Uh, you say we know how and that we already have these capabilities at our hands, but at the same time, the solution right now is supposed to come from venture capitalist-backed startups in Silicon Valley. Um, how do you see it possible in a realistic fashion that within 20 years, uh, solar and wind would be able to produce enough energy to supply the entire states of America um, in an economically efficient way? And given that at the moment you'd have to cover the, probably the entire states of Montana and Idaho or something like that with wind farms and solar in order to even come close uh, to provide that amount of electricity. And then what if it takes 50 years? What if it takes longer? There's this variable that you assume we can do this technologically in the next 20 years. What if it takes 50 years? Then how, what do we do in the meanwhile to to cover the base load? Sure, so um, we have a problem, which is the scientists are telling us that the climate is heating up. And the timeline they've laid out is, if we keep doing what we're doing, we're gonna end up in a world of hurt, or to avert the worst effects of climate change, we need to reduce most carbon emissions in the next 20 or 30 years. So it's sort of a physics issue, right? It's not can't sort of say, well, if you don't quite make it, it's okay. But what they're saying is there's actually some significant consequences. So when we think about, okay, so we've got 20 years, let's begin doing things we know how to do today, and let's invest in all the things to make sure we get to the end result as quickly as possible. Right? I mean, think about electric cars. Two years ago, there was no plug-in electric cars in this country. But now the Chevy Volt that gets, they're estimating around 176 miles per gallon. For the average car in the United States, the Chevy Volt gets 170. So we've cut fuel use by a factor of eight. Um, so there's things we can do today that get us down that path as we continue to work out how do we integrate fully electric vehicles into our entire transportation system? How do we move with 100% wind and solar? And there are states that are already marching down the path that have got, in the case of um, Midwest states, a third of the way there. And so Let's make sure other states are catching up, and let's continue to push the envelope on the technology. So again, California is really the hotbed where this is really happening. We're gonna be at 30% clean energy in the next five years, uh, and there's no reason we can't keep that march on as we continue to work out how to integrate more and more clean energy into the overall mix. So um, all indications are this is going exactly in the right direction. We just gotta make sure it's uh, supported, and we don't let the fossil fuel guys who've now realized that clean energy is a threat, 
spending an enormous amount of effort from state legislatures to roll back a huge amount of state energy initiatives uh, across the country, North Carolina, Kansas, uh, et cetera. Uh, to date, it hasn't happened. Um, but there's a real battle for who's going to power the country for the 21st century. Right. Do you want to respond yeah. to that question? Can I? At I feel like sometimes when we talk about energy, like if we actually study the history of energy, we study the market, like what are the best forms, like what have the real innovators actually done? Not what people on a stage who never produce energy, what do they say they can do or quote, we know how to do or whatever. Not think tanks. What have real energy producers done? There's only three technologies that in the whole history of mankind have made the magnificent achievement of being able to produce cheap, reliable, abundant energy. I mentioned fossil fuels, nuclear power, which Sierra Club and others have helped uh, dismantle, and then hydropower, which is a great technology, although it's limited by the number uh, of rivers that you have. But if you're talking about, if, if you, seri I mean, you can keep saying the same thing about the scientists say, et cetera. I should show you, okay, so the leading scientist cited by uh, Bruce in his work and um, and uh, Sierra Club and 350.org is a guy named Dr. James Hansen. And since he works at NASA, he's supposed to be omniscient. So here's Hansen's famous graph. Okay, so basically, I'll, I'll, I know it's a little small, but um, if you look at the bottom line, this was if we had stopped CO2 emissions in 2000. Now we've gone way beyond that. This was if, we, if it had stayed at the same rate as it was back in the late 80s, and this is if it had gone up by 1.5% a year. Okay, and he predicted these will be the temperatures. Now, in fact, we went up here. We used way more than his worst case scenario. Now, for me, it's a great case scenario, and I think the statistics bear me out. This is where we are, considerably below this. So again, climate prediction models that can't predict climate. I don't care if he has a doctorate. I care if he's right. And if he's right, he has to prove it to me. And he can't use, I mean, it, go read these scientific pronouncements. Basically, they all say, we all agree on climate change, everyone agrees with, and then they non sequitur to, the government should do something. And we can talk about why these things exist. But the fact is, these, all these claims are based on climate prediction models that can't predict climate, and no one wants to address that. No one wants to address the fact that the energy from fossil fuels improves climate safety. Those are the inconvenient facts. But if you did actually care about this issue, you would say, you would look at the history, and uh, you know I do a lot of research on the history of energy. There has been one, exactly one technology in history that does not emit CO2, that has been cheap. It was cheap before Sierra Club and others helped destroy it. And that is scalable. Scalable is key, right? Wind and solar, not remotely scalable. That's why Germany's building a bunch of coal plants, because the more unreliability you add to a system, it's like adding unreliable workers to Apple. You know, you can get away with a couple of them because the other people can compensate. But if it's all unreliable workers, the whole thing shuts down. So that's basically what wind and solar are. So you have a scalable thing that works. And if you look actually at the history of the safety, it has the best safety record. But even if it had the third best safety record, if this is really a catastrophe of our time, you've got one affordable, scalable form of energy. And yet you're looking at the worst technological energy failures, the non-scalable ones of the last 75 years. This is a bizarro world. And the only reason that it's done, as far as I can tell, is that there is a religious obsession with somehow getting energy from the sun and the wind instead of getting it from concentrated radioactive material here on Earth that's reliable, scalable, and can be cheap. So I'm not a champion of fossil fuel power. I'm a champion of great energy. And one of the greatest energy technologies in the world is one the Sierra Club has helped destroy and hold back. 
and that is nuclear power. So if we are, if we are accepting the premise that is, contradicts the science, that fossil fuels are a danger uh, going forward because of climate prediction models that can't predict climate, for God's sake, let's talk about a real energy technology. This is the equivalent, like if you were talking about, I've got a replacement for steel in skyscrapers, and your replacement idea was wood. That's the equivalent of solar and wind as a modern energy technology. Well, actually, Alex basically just stole my question, um, which was going to be for Bruce, uh, which is that if global warming is the existential threat of our age, if, if it, we have to do something in 20 years or catastrophe occurs, why on earth are we not looking to a, a method of energy that we know can produce on the scale we need, even, even if we take that it's more expensive now because of the actions of people like you, why don't we look to that so that we can avoid this existential threat? Why would we look to things that we're still kind of, with these variables that we will figure it out over the next 20 years? We already have nuclear figured out. Why not? And we have figured out that nuclear is super expensive and it takes a very long time to build, right? I mean, look at, there's a, there's a project in Georgia. I appreciate everyone thinks that Sierra Club is omnipotent. I can tell you in Georgia, we don't have a lot of power, right? Let's be honest. It's run by Southern Company. And um, the state or Georgia, the country? Georgia, the state, the great state of Georgia. Um, there's, there's a nuclear power plant that's uh, almost a billion dollars for post budget. The residents of Georgia are already paying ten bucks a month on their bills, and the thing is not producing any electricity. It is a wholesale heist of the ratepayers in Georgia. Simply insanity from a monetary perspective. It's more expensive than any of the other alternatives. And then if you look at the countries that have bet big on nuclear, and it doesn't take far before you go west, before you hit Japan, where I was actually born, uh, they bet their entire economy on nuclear. And that's a really bad bet. And they are still suffering enormous consequences of having a very dangerous energy production source in the midst of a pretty densely populated island. And what you see them doing today is the largest solar development work in, in the world is going on in Japan and offshore wind. And those things don't have the trade-offs, and they're cheaper than nuclear. So why wouldn't you do something that is cheaper and without the threats before you do something expensive with a whole bunch of baggage? Do you want to respond on the at all on the, I mean, you sort of did talk to the Yeah, I mean, this is just a matter of, of I mean, this is a very clear historical record here. Um, if you go back to the 70s, if you want some references, I'd recommend Dr. Petter Beckman uh, and Dr. Bernard Cohen, who've made extensive study of price inflation in nuclear. Uh, in the 1970s, nuclear plants that were this, some of the safest plants ever built were cost competitive, if not cost superior, to coal. Um, so, And they were built rather quickly. The reason why they take forever to build, okay, maybe it's not just the Sierra Club, but it's certainly the Sierra Club and Greenpeace and everyone else, and then a whole government infrastructure, which does, is not scientific in the following way. If your government has to have laws about safety, but those laws have to be equitable. You have to base your laws on safety against which, you know, what are the actual risks? And nuclear is held to orders of magnitude higher standards of quote-unquote safety than anyone else. So if you if you put enough restrictions on something, enough quote safety regulations, then yeah, it'll be infinitely, uh, you know, it'll be infinitely expensive. And it, but it's but the people who are crippling it are saying that it's expensive. I mean, 
it's like if, you know, if nuclear is LeBron James and I'm wind and I hit in his kneecaps and I managed to beat him in a game of one-on-one, -on -one, and then I say, look, you know, you can't jump, you can't do anything. Well, it's my fault. So the point is, we had LeBron James in the 1970s, who knows what we could have right now. And as far as safety, you know, in the, in the civilized uh, world, we have, you know, the three, you know, we have Three Mile Island, you know, where no one died. And then we have Fukushima, you're talking, it's, it's incredible that Sierra Club and other people, you've got a tragic tsunami, 20,000 people die. No one dies from nuclear radiation. Six people die just from, you know, six people in the area die as workers. Imagine how many of the 20,000 were workers. And the response is we can't use nuclear. So of course, yeah, Japan was pressured into doing it. Germany was pressured. They shut down a lot of nuclear plants. A lot of people did a lot of irrational things. What this shows is that we have an unbelievably technophobic attitude uh, toward nuclear. And I mean, for God's sake, if at least, you know, if you want to look at, at an I'd say a much more honest approach to this issue. The Breakthrough Institute in San Francisco, uh, I completely disagree with on catastrophic global warming, but at least they take it seriously and they say, look, if you want to look at the ways to deal with that at all that work remotely, it would be number one, um, nuclear power, and number two, adopt natural gas, which is, has reduced CO2 emissions more than anyone. You don't start a banned nuclear campaign and a beyond gas uh, campaign unless you want to go you know, beyond prosperity or before prosperity. I got it. So my question is directed to you. Um, it seems that a primary goal of the Sierra Club is to prevent climate change and that you're advocating a, an approach that's based on abstinence of um, eliminating carbon use. Um, this seems like a negative phrasing of a negative goal. So why not phrase it positively as um, eliminating, or sorry, achieving um, climate stability, and then I'll add that um, when I was a kid, the big scare was um, the next global ice age. So it flipped, which that was like the late um, 70s, I guess. So um, <clears throat> if we're really going to go and achieve um, climate stability, we need to also really control the temperature of the climate, even go so far as to terraform the Earth or something like that. So why, is your, why are your goals not phrased positively? Um, the, you could phrase my way. We're trying to, we see enormous exciting development going on across this country about people who are saying, we don't need fossil fuels, we don't need the trade-offs, and we're doing energy conservation for communities. Um, I shared with you a bunch of examples. Uh, to me, that's American ingenuity, putting people to work at a time that they're taking those jobs, and it showcases we can do this. Last year, we installed more wind in the United States than any other country in the world. We led by example. To me, that is a very positive story that is resonating in the halls of Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, California, um, because it's real solutions to the problem that we're all facing. So, um, uh, you can phrase it either way, but uh, I appreciate that. I guess, my, I guess another way to say the question then is do you think that just these um, alternate methods are enough to achieve stability? Or do you think that we could be facing either an ice age or you know, a hot planet? Um, so obviously our ability, our scientific modeling is going from oxygen to carbon. Um, and when we think about. But if yeah. we look back in history, like 10,000 or 
a couple of million years, we'll see ice ages and also much warmer periods then too. So the question is, what's what's our responsibility to? If we're gonna, if we like the temperature at right now, are we gonna step up and really do what it takes to keep it there? Or? That's right. Or are we gonna face record sea level rises? And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to be in the Midwest this past summer, but seeing the entire corn crop fail, that was a pretty scary harbinger. Of forest fires were raging across Colorado. That's what scientists said are coming. And the thing that I think often gets lost in the public debate is. I don't know if you know or work with scientists, they are the last ones to ring the alarm bell. They're the ones saying, oh, we gotta study it, and we gotta study it again, and we gotta study it again. They've been doing that for decades um, or more on climate change, and I've got to a point where they're pretty certain that we're on a serious bad trajectory, but we don't need to be on it. And so if the evidence, is, as the National Academy of Sciences says, let us be prudent steps that uh, are actually better than the alternative. That is, they create more jobs, they don't have all the pollution problems I listed, uh, and that all adds up to a positive dollar. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about what I think is a like a pro-science, pro-technology, philosophical outlook to things, because I think we have almost a quasi-religious authoritarian idea here. Just the idea of, do you know scientists? Scientists say, like, who is scientists? There's no, there's no like blob of sort of collective wisdom that's that's like coming to this uniform conclusion. They're discrete individuals with discrete specializations, with discrete you know degrees of honesty. And the question is, you know, if if we're interested in you know, a given conclusion, it's pretty simple. You know, you a good scientist just explains his evidence. Uh, to the public clearly. And, I mean, I can just show this again. I mean, it's James Hansen is a scientist, and he is unfortunately part of what is not a scientific campaign. It's true a lot of scientists are conservative. One way in which they're conservative is a lot of them don't want to lose tenure by speaking up against this kind of thing. A lot of people don't want to lose their government jobs. A lot of people don't want to lose their environmental think tank jobs. So they're, they're conservative in that way. But the fact is, my colleague, Eric Dennis, who's a physicist, you know, people, we go and talk to people all the time. And he doesn't even say, I'm a physicist, you should listen to me. He doesn't tell them anything. All he says is they say, oh, it's been proven that catastrophic global warming. He just says, what's the proof? And it's just always during the headlights. No one has the proof. They just heard. So what it basically means is the media told me. Because you didn't hear the proof, it just means media told you. Because what the facts tell you is the climate prediction models can't predict climate, and that fossil fuels improve the planet. They make us safer. Now, I want to take a more historic view toward climate, because uh, I think, again, we have a quasi-religious sort of fear of climate. In the past 10,000 years ago, it made sense to be afraid of the climate, because physically, you couldn't do much to cope with it. You know, if there was a drought, you died. Today, if there's a drought, we have a virtual internet of oil-powered machines that can alleviate it. That's why in the last 80 years, drought-related deaths have gone down by 99.98%. That's a much more important fact than that there was a drought in one part of the world last year. That is not, that is all out of context. That's, that is not useful. It's useless. It's distortion. You need the full context. The full context is that modern energy makes us much safer. And it just... Take this as a common sense example. Think about the United States. We've got every conceivable climate. 
Right. I mean, I happen to live in Southern California. I feel very fortunate, although without modern technology, I probably couldn't live there because it'd be more or less a desert. But you've got Florida, you know, you've got swampy areas, you've got desert areas, you've got like polar Arctic areas in Alaska. You've got every climate imaginable, you've got tornadoes, cyclones, whatever. And we all can expect to live to 80. So we should be, what, what's happened is that technology and energy have evolved to the point where climate is progressively irrelevant to our lives. And yet we're using one form of technology, computer technology, to come up with bogus models to make us feel terrified of the climate instead of feeling terrified of the prospect of reducing all the forms of energy that allow us to deal with the climate. So CO2 levels have been 10 times what they are. And you know there's been life on Earth. There's been mammal life with much higher temperatures, much higher levels of CO2. What makes our life unique is that we have cheap, reliable energy and a technological civilization. That's the fragile thing. So when people say, you know, we need to reduce, you know, 350 is the target. The scientists have given us a target. The real scientists, the scientists of human life tell us that's a target. And if you go down to it, it's mass destruction. Um, one comment for Bruce. So I'm a recently trained Berkeley uh, paleontologist, PhD in December finally done. That's great. I will say that my experience as a scientist um, working around and with people interested in paleoclimate, environmental science, things like that, not completely, but much more squares with the sort of intellectual climate that Alex described as opposed to the very conservative glacial sort of um, yeah, extremely methodical and objective climate that you described. So point of data there. Um, Alex, my question is for you. Kate, you've touched on this just briefly. Um, but you've mentioned several times climate safety and climate-related deaths. Can you explicate these metrics in more detail? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, hopefully this will be satisfying. It's, it's a fairly straightforward thing. I and mean, if you just look at you know, climate, or which you don't experience as climate, because climate is an average over decades, but you experience it as, as weather and a disaster. I mean, the question is, when there's a flood, when there's a storm, uh, when there's drought, what happens? Uh, you know, how many people, when you look, you know, when you look around a country and you see how are people dying, how are people living, how many of them are dying from something that's, you know, very strongly related to a specific disastrous uh, weather event? And this is relevant because, um, you know, a lot of, so something like flooding would pertain to something like, like sea level rise, which, you know, Al Gore says is going to be, uh, you know, 20 feet. And fortunately, it's on pace for not even being 20 inches uh, in the next century. But, you know, it, it adds up things like that. So what it does is it adds up and it tells you all these things that we're supposed to be afraid of, what's actually happened since people said really 30 years ago, you know, they went from the public cooling thing to, you know, the more warming. Since they started saying warming is the big problem, what's actually happened to your danger, to your likelihood of dying from this kind of thing? Uh, and on average, it's gone way down. And imagine if we had that much, and it's gone, it's lower, of course, in the areas that use more fossil fuels than use less fossil fuels. So imagine we have the kind of energy progress I'm talking about, where every form of energy is free to compete uh, without subsidies, without mandates. You know, the climate will become much safer. But ultimately, you know, the climate is a very overstated issue right now. The real issue is a billion people don't have electricity. You know, people are still malnourished. These are all problems that can be solved with energy and technology. It's nice that climate-related deaths will go down, but we've more mastered that problem than the others. Still, the basic problems of human life and flourishing uh, have a lot to go, and that's why, you know, that's why I'm here. Just one last 
respond to that question at all about how you perceive uh, climate related? I mean, so, so climate related deaths. She gave or, her, she gave, um, Alex has this. Or natural disaster. Well, just sort of thinking about this past year, right, when we began to see some of the uh, manifestations of what a warmer climate looks like, whether it's forest fires, flooding, hurricanes. And what the scientists are saying is that if we continue the warming path, those things are going to get worse. It's not going to get worse tomorrow. It's going to get progressively worse as the concentration climb in the atmosphere. The problem with Alex's theory is that you have to wait until you see it, and then you might do something about it. Once you fill up the climate with carbon, the risk is that you're past the point of no return. So we're asking to, to wait, which is a classic tactic of first tobacco and now fossil fuels, is um, it's really just trying to buy as much time before sort of the consensus is we gotta do something about this problem, we're all in this together. And so waiting to see until the sea level rises is really the wrong way to think about this problem. This is about preventing a problem. This is why the largest reinsurance company in the world, um, out of Switzerland, is on the front lines of saying, we need to do something about climate change. Because if we don't, then all these catastrophic events that we are seeing that are projected to get worse are really going to add up to huge economic ruin, both in the United States and around the world. So. Um, it's a very seductive thing to say, well, we haven't seen all of these problems happen yet. But if you're loading up the atmosphere, they are coming. And there are a lot of indications, I would submit, as of last summer, that spurred a lot of people to realize that we actually need to do something about this sooner rather than later. And delay, which is a classic tactic, really has no business if we're actually going to act on the best science to take appropriate steps that the planet we leave to our kids actually a planet that has some of the similar stability that we have here today. This is a question for both speakers, or not tall enough for me. Uh, just first off, I found it profoundly offensive that you just compared fossil fuel companies to tobacco companies. Like, the quantity of impact that is positive they've had on our lives over the last hundred years is just ridiculous, and it, it's absurd. Um, the second is not is actually a question, not just a comment on your lack of respect for human life, but uh, I'm an entrepreneur in the area, as are all of my friends. When we have an idea about what the world should look like 20 years from now, we go out and we either ask an investor to give us money, or we build something and then get consumers to pay us. Why don't you go do that? Um, the Sierra Club, which is a nonprofit organization, um, is about engaging our members, and our members engaging in this thing we call democracy. So we think about what just happened in Lancaster, and they voted to tell companies that are currently making money by providing a product to customers that want it to stop doing that and instead to mandate that the cost of a house is going to go up by putting another form of This is democracy. Right? Then that's not good. Well, you should stop that. That's bad. You should do something. That is a fundamental question because I think implicit in what a lot of Alex The, the second question is for Alex. I just want to say ask questions. Okay. okay, thank you. Quantify the impact of your policies on the economy, kind of like Kim. You wouldn't say that, but Alex, then, could you speak to kind of like what is the economic impact currently that instead of going to investors and asking for money, you go to the government and ask for money to fund other forms of energy and to stop producing the forms of energy that work? Can I actually address, because you actually uh, said that you were insulted by the comparison between tobacco and fossil fuels. So let me give you an example of why I think the same. 
And you may know that one of the big supporters of our campaign is Mayor Bloomberg. He is a big supporter of our coal work. And the reason he says that addressing coal is so important, and as he also fights tobacco, is he looks at this strictly through the lens of public health. You can document how many people are dying from tobacco. You can document how many people are dying from coal-fired power plants. 13,000 in the United States every year. 13,000 people dying prematurely. So there's actually a similarity. That is, they're both public health medicines. But more importantly, what I was getting at is the way that they are going about their business. And there was a perfect example during the debate around the climate bill in 2009. Uh, the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity, which is the umbrella group of coal miners, coal burning utilities, and railroads, was the leading opposition to a climate bill getting passed in the United States Congress, the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity. What their lobbyists did was go out and create fake letters from the NAACP to members of Congress in their district saying, we, the local chapter of the NAACP, oppose this bill. They were exposed. And that was just the big, it's like cockroaches. Once you pull back the curtain, it's like, what else were they doing? Yeah, that's, that's every lobbyist. Have you been to Sacramento? Have you been to Washington, D.C.? Is that okay? There's people like you is that, that okay? are fighting on the road. Every lobbyist is a bastard. Every lobbyist is a bastard. I, I want to, if you have a, yeah, if you want to have a question, if you have a question for, for Alex, you can ask it, but then I'm going to sit it, down. I'd like to hear okay, okay. I'm sorry, I'm just very offended. Um, okay, so. Duly noted. Wait, is it? The question is, is what is, yeah, what are the economic impacts of current policies to reduce fossil fuel emissions? As I understood it. Oh, yeah, I mean, uh, horrific. Um, I mean, no, I really, I don't know how we can laugh about this kind of thing. Um, I mean, I really want to take seriously the point that I mean, if you look on the margin, it's especially um, just telling. Like someone who has a refrigerator versus doesn't, and it does. It's you have that kind of mar people who have crossed that kind of margin. You're talking about in the billions. Now, what would it have meant if they could have done that ten years earlier? Like whose best friend would still be alive? Whose mother would still be alive? These issues of having more energy is opportunity. It's the opportunity to live a longer and better life, to do more things. Every increment of energy you have means you have more opportunity, you have more life. So any, we do not joke about energy either way. If you think I'm wrong about the economics, that's one thing. But um, So when we talk about, for example, just the nationalization of oil around the world and how much that restricts production, how much that creates irrational things. Uh, if we talk about, um, you know, in... You know, right now there's enormous opposition, of course, led by the Sierra Club to hydraulic fracturing, which is probably the greatest new technology uh, of our age. I mean, this is something that has unlocked, you know, by their standards even, the cleanest form of fossil fuel. Um, you know, that's also unlocking more oil. And it just, it's revolutionizing America already. It's making manufacturing jobs cheaper. So imagine if that were able to accelerate. And I think arguably the biggest um, detriment done by the so-called environmentalist movement has been the the gutting of nuclear because that has uh, nuclear the reason it, it can be so exciting is because you have such a high concentration of energy in a small space and so oil has the highest amount of concentration of the things we deal with um, and nuclear has a million times the concentration of oil so there's just incredible technology that's been held back tremendously so if, if you think about imagine imagine that these holding back were only like caused us 1% or 2% growth. Like if you take 2% a year extra compound interest, you live in a completely different country after 20 or 30 years. And if you want to look at the opposite, keep in mind that organizations like Sierra Club in the 1970s 
and leading environmentalist thinkers were saying, you know what, we use, you know, we're wasting all kinds of energy. We need to be more quote efficient. And you know what, the biggest form of energy wasted was something that's as unnecessary as electricity. So there's a big anti-electricity movement. And electricity, I would say, came in a lot of handy in the 80s, 90s, uh, and 2000s, given the computer revolution. So imagine just stopping that by 25%, what that means. So anytime you talk about stopping energy, you're talking about stopping life, and you better have a damn good reason, not this. So since you brought up the point of offense, I'm, I'm extremely offended that you think that anybody who is on the pro side of environmentalists thinks that we are saying stop energy. I think that's ridiculous. Nobody's saying stop energy. I think the argument is what's the more responsible source of energy for the longer future, which you probably won't live in, but what's the more responsible source of energy and how do we get there? That's point of offense to counter that. My question for you is, is it okay to marginalize smaller communities who are actually directly impacted by coal plants or fracking, seismic activity or what have you? As a philosopher, is it okay to marginalize smaller groups of community that don't have a voice for what you call is the greater good? That's the first question. Secondly, the graph that you showed, which showed us carbon dioxide emissions to people dying, that, that's absurd. I, I don't think anybody's stupid enough over here to buy that argument. I, think I gave you the source. You look it up. The, the point of comparing deaths to carbon dioxide emissions, I take offense to that as an intellectual because what you should be showing me is tell me how many people have increased in asthma in India once coal has started becoming more. Tell me what healthcare costs have gone up because carbon dioxide emissions have gone up consistently. What are the external costs to every single Katrina kind of event that we've had over carbon dioxide emissions? So I, that's just for future reference. That I think you should put that in your graphs as opposed to something absurd as deaths. To. So you want to make me more effective? Yeah. Um, okay. Thanks. Okay. Okay. So there were two things you were offended by, and one. Okay. Um, I don't have all my graphs here, but. So let me try to think. Okay, so well, as a philosopher, I need you to come back up and define marginalize. Okay, so the Appalachian Mountains, the people who live there, or the other communities that I mentioned, the Native Indians, uh -huh. the fact that they're breathing extremely not clean air, and it's not good for their health. Is it okay to do that for the greater good of energy and cheap energy? No, I, I mean, I, I'll say the same thing I said before, which is that you need objective standards of pollution that are based on science and are based on the fact, on the right to pursue energy, the fact that energy is necessary uh, for life. So if you talk 30, about... Hold, hold on, hold on a second. 13,000 people dying. I'm giving you because you okay, like okay. that is the externality. 13,000 people dying because of... Okay, but this, okay, this is... is th first okay? of all, this is, this, these are based on... Uh, False correlations and a lot of the fallacy I talked about before. False correlation is yes. death to carbon dioxide emissions. That's false correlation. Okay, let's, yeah, okay. Let's, so let me let, let me let, let me point out. Response. I showed a general correlation between this, right? That was a profound correlation. So um, I think Bruce talked about people sort of threw off the statistics of people dying prematurely. I recommend doing a web search on the different opinions on that particular statistic. I don't think we have time to go into it. I disagree with it. But if you're talking about people dying prematurely. You have to talk about all the people who are living unnaturally long. You have to look at the whole picture. And what we know is that people are living unnaturally long, good lives. People are not choking on air. We have the best air in the history of the world. Air quality, water quality, all of these are going up using more fossil fuel. I know you're, you seem to be waiting to look, no, for, you know, you seem to be waiting for something, no, but, but you should take it in. But if you get what I'm saying, then you would, then you would, I think you would be processing it with okay. you know, more levity, because if you, t and so this gets to the point of offense of you're offended that I um, somehow dismissed all environmentalists. 
What I said was there's a continuum. To the extent you restrict fossil fuels, it leads to suffering and death. What Bruce and the Sierra Club propose would lead to mass, mass, unimaginable suffering and death. What I imagine you propose might lead to less, but why suffer and die when you can live? So that goes back to my question, which was marginalizing smaller communities. It's that you're taking a statistic of life expectancy across the globe, or whatever the basis of that statistic is. Okay, with all due respect, I want to give Bruce a chance to respond to the question. So uh, thank you, but let's... Uh, I think it's exactly the right question, which is the the way Alex talks is there's a lot of little people who are going to get hurt in this process, but if we look globally, that's not the right question. The United States, uh, we have the ability to make a choice. Are we going to continue to rely on fossil fuels and 40-year-old coal-fired power plants that are hammering the heck out of people who are seeing none of the benefits, right? And so... That, that, that's a, a choice we don't have to make in the United States. We can invest in clean energy, replace those filthy coal plants, and do profound things that are helping everybody have a better standard of living, improve the environment, and combat climate change. And I want to say something about your, your economic point, because you, you throw out this um, clean energy is only happening because it's sort of irrational. Some of the greatest developments going on in Oklahoma today, it's not going on because of any mandate. It's going on because it's smart economic development in Oklahoma to invest in wind. It's helping displace coal and natural gas in Oklahoma. It's such a great resource that they're now proposing to build a transmission line all the way to Alabama from Oklahoma. And it's happening because it's good business sense. And so there's sort of this disconnect that sort of under the uh, promise of fossil fuels, you're missing the fact that coal is not a cheap option anymore. It may have been at one point. It no longer is today. The cost of coal production, because coal is now deeper, the seams are thinner, it's more expensive to get out of the ground. Coal plants have to install modern pollution controls, not to address climate change, but to address everything else. And it makes no economic sense when you put that coal plant up against the clean energy alternatives, which is why nobody's building a coal plant today. So your whole economic argument is two decades out of date. Coal plants make no economic sense in the United States today. Can I just make like a 20 second up to date argument? <laughs> okay, try it and then I'll get okay, it. So, okay, fine. Um, the, thing that, the thing that makes coal relatively expensive um, has nothing to do with wind. Wind is uh, enormously expensive and parasitical. The thing that's cheap right now, no thanks to Sierra Club, is natural gas, which is unbelievably cheap thanks to hydraulic fracturing, which they want to outlaw. Intermittent resource heavy material, uh, things like wind are as outdated as they come, because they never they never had a time except maybe the 13th century. And I would like to move forward in the 21st century with fossil fuels, nuclear, and hydro. And if solar and wind ever got good, great. Do you want to respond to the natural gas? I think it's an interesting point. I'd love to hear you know, the, just that that what's making coal uncompetitive in the U.S. Gas fire electricity in the U.S. There's two things that are undermining both coal and nuclear. Because you said you can't build new, new nuclear plants, and I would point to they're trying in Georgia and. They just announced they're shutting down a nuclear power plant in my home state of Wisconsin. And they gave a simple answer. It wasn't because it was at the end of its life. It wasn't any environmental regulation. It was simply too expensive to run. They're shutting down that nuclear power plant because the economics doesn't make no sense. Is gas playing a part? Yes. But if you look at what are the nuclear folks saying is the biggest threat? Exelon, which is the owner of the largest uh, uh, nuclear power fleet in the country, has set itself at target at uh, ending any support for wind because it says wind is the single biggest threat to nuclear power plants. And so when you look at what's actually going on in the electric sector, gas is playing a piece, wind is paying a piece, solar increasing in California, New Jersey, New York, 
Uh, and the other thing we're doing for the very first time is we're actually getting smarter about using energy more efficiently. We haven't talked at all about energy efficiency. In fact, why is it in the United States we use so much more power than per capita than any other place in the country? It's because we are lagging in being smart about being um, uh, adopting the best technologies in conservation um, that we know are abundant um, technologies around the world. So those three things together, gas, wind, and efficiency. The gas piece, obviously, as you said, gives us serious heartburn because we're going to have to get off that as a fossil fuel ultimately. Um, but again, we're not saying do this tomorrow. You said two days. It's not two days either. What we're saying is we can phase out coal quickly over the next decade or so, and then let's get serious about working out how do we get oil and natural gas also to a place where we're not contributing to the climate crisis. We can do this. We're already doing it. So let's get go busy at doing it, and let's not have all these delay tactics um, that are just sort of slowing us down. Well, I think we need to wrap up. Um, it's been an interesting conversation. Thank you both. Is there one question much. last? Can you make it in can 10 you seconds? Make it quick. <laughs> No, I think, I think we should wrap I it up. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I don't I'm think getting, we're going to be in quick. Think, At least think, I'm not. I think, uh, Happy to talk after Yeah, and I, I'd encourage you to come up. Um, thank you all very much as well for your contributions. <laughs>